Hello, I'm Mark McCrory. I'm a pastor in Arizona, and I get a lot of questions about God and religion and Jesus, the Bible. And I thought I'd make a video uh, once for each question here, do a series of some of the most popular questions that I get. And then they're available online, on podcasts, uh, to view, to listen to, to share. Uh, so let's start off with the very first question, and that is the big one. Is God real? Uh, does God exist? However you want to ask that question. And uh, just to make sure we're all on the same page when we talk about God, I'm going to use uh, Paul's words uh, from Acts chapter 17 uh, when he describes God to these philosophers in Athens, Greece. And he defines God this way. Uh, Acts 17 verses 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. And he is served, uh, I'm sorry, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. In other words, God is not dependent on humans for anything. And you got to remember the cultures of these days uh, had temples for all of these different gods, uh, Greek gods, Roman gods, uh, pagans. Uh, they would offer food and all of these things, uh, sacrifice to their gods. Um, but Paul is saying that, no, God is actually the giver of life to all, as well as the giver of all that we have. And he mentions uh, kind of four attributes in these two verses here. He talks about the First, God is the creator. He made the world and everything in it. Uh, everything that exists uh, was created by this God. Uh, then he talks about the sovereignty of God, how he's Lord of heaven and earth. He's Lord over everything. Uh, the third attribute, he talks about how uh, he is omnipresent, is the, the big theological word, that he is present everywhere. He's not confined by a temple. And then finally, Paul, he proclaims God is self-existent. In other words, he does not need anything, including the sacrifices offered to their gods, uh, but instead, actually, we are dependent on him for our very lives. And he continues to witness and to even share the gospel. Uh, verses 32 to 34. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from there in their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius the Arachipagite and a woman named Demarius who, and others with them. So uh, a number of people heard uh, Paul's reasoning about God, heard about Jesus, what Jesus had done, and they, and, and they believed. And so the question, uh, is God real? That's kind of the first question of any kind of faith conversation or talk about, you know, thoughts about religion around the world. What evidence do we have? And, you know, people have a lot of questions. There's, there's just a lot of questions stirring around in our minds uh, during the day, maybe at night when our head's on the pillow, when we slow down to think about the really big questions in life. Uh, many of those questions are very perplexing. 
Again, is there a God? Is he real? Is he really out there? Well, the short answer is yes. Uh, absolutely, there is a God. And uh, if you're in a church like I am, you probably don't even think about it very often. You just kind of take it for granted. Yeah, we know there's a God. He's, he's there. He's here. He's, he's real. And we all have stories where, you know, God has revealed little things to us or provided for us or protected us in a situation that we uh, just can't explain any other way. Uh, but it is a question that, uh, while we don't think about it, um, uh, many people do. And the reality is, uh, you know, God is. You know, the name he gave, Yahweh, means I am. And he just is. God is the existing one. And for a lot of people, though, that's just not good enough. And there's a lot of uh, confusing information uh, that people pick up. Honestly, in, in public schools and colleges and universities, uh, there's just been a different perspective uh, that we'll talk about. And so a lot of people want to know, is there any evidence? Is there any proof? Is there, is there any way that we can prove that God is real? Because they want some kind of a tangible, I'll use a big word, epistemological, uh, that means something that can be measured, some kind of proof for God's existence. Uh, is God real? And what kind of evidence are most people looking for? Well, uh, people want a voice. They want uh, some kind of, again, something solid, uh, some kind of a feeling maybe. But again, the short answer, absolutely yes and absolutely yes. There is plenty of proof. There's plenty of proof. And again, in this short time with you, I'm just going to kind of hit the highlights. Uh, we can go a lot deeper under each one of these uh, topics. Uh, but let's just uh, uh, kind of an introductory uh, talk on this topic today. Uh, so we're going to look at six proofs that are based on natural revelation. Uh, just uh, philosophy, science, just natural order things. Uh, six proofs that God exists and pretty much any argument that you've heard uh, for God um, falls into one of these six categories. Uh, the first topic or the first category, if you will, you talk about the existence of God. It's called the teleological argument. Teleological argument. And this comes from the Greek word telos, which means goal or end. And so the teleological argument says that things have a goal. Things have a purpose. There's not just a bunch of randomness going on in the universe, in ecosystems, even in a biological systems, even in the human body. Uh, multiple, multiple systems all working together to, toward a goal, whether it's the the blood pump, the heart pumping the blood to get the oxygen to the muscles and the cells, the clint, you know, multiple, multiple uh, systems for multiple purposes and all working together. So if you think about a simple example, like a little creek, right? It, it, it's going somewhere. It's, it's got a destination. Actually, the Verde Creek here in Arizona, it flows into the Salt River, which flows into the Gila River, which flows into the Colorado River and into the Gulf of California. 
and even wider than that there's the whole hydrological cycle of evaporating condensation and back and round and round uh, these systems go and they have a purpose uh, for these things that happen uh, everything has a purpose and uh, there's a reason there is a design that's built in uh, the you know the reason why things are the way they are and here's the thing designs don't just happen they don't just randomly appear. That means there is a designer behind the design. And so one argument that falls under this first category is called the intelligent design theory. It talks about how we can see intelligence in the universe, in, again, ecosystems everywhere, that implies that there had to be something to design it. Another popular argument if you will as the watchmaker theory if you're walking through the woods and you find a you know a pocket watch laying on the ground uh, you pick it up you assume somebody designed that and made that it didn't just randomly appear in the woods and so when you look at the universe uh, <laughs> again from the macro level everything you see through a telescope down to everything you see in a microscope it's just incredible the design how how everything works together and how even delicately balanced it is just to exist and especially just to have life be able to exist and to think that it all happened just randomly that all of these elements and molecules and, and cells it just all got thrown together randomly and it all just happened to come out uh, like this is <laughs> just astronomical it'd be like uh, uh, how many times would a hurricane have to blow through a junkyard uh, before there to just randomly be a 747 jumbo jet assembled and ready to fly uh, I mean it's just too complicated of a system to think that it all happened by chance. Uh, and I would say it actually takes a little more faith uh, to believe that there's not a designer in everything that we see. Uh, but the second argument, uh, second category, is called the cosmological argument, which basically means if there is something, then something must have caused it. There's something that uh, exists, something must have created it. If, if something is in motion, something must have pushed it. Okay. Um, so if you look at the heavens at night, you've probably been amazed, right, at the countless points of light up in our night skies. Uh, and whatever it is you observed, it must have gotten there because something caused it. And that thing exists because something caused it. And you just keep working your way back. Children do this. I know my son does this with the question, why? <laughs> you just keep asking, why? 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 And actually, it's been said that you can uh, put anybody uh, to the point of, you know, kind of having an absurd position uh, just by asking why about 10 times. <laughs> and there's some truth to that because ultimately we come to where does it all begin? Right? What's the very first cause? And the Greek philosophers, uh, they reasoned that God was, uh, they called the unmoved 
mover, uh, the first thing that sets everything into motion, uh, something that, that begins it all. That's cosmological argument. Uh, another uh, example is uh, the anthropological argument, which says that people have a sense of something more. Anthropological. Humans, uh, they just have a sense that there is something more than uh, themselves. There's something more than just this life. Uh, something more than just the physical that we can see and feel and hear. Uh, there's a sense of a divine being, uh, which is why uh, every culture on every continent of every time in history, every absolutely universal, uh, every group of peoples have this sense of, of God, of divine existence. That's why uh, their religions, that's why they have beliefs in God. It, it, it's just universal, this sense of God. And this sense had to come from somewhere. It's not just coincidentally happening in all of these separate groups of people all throughout time, the history of the world, uh, all times and places. You know, it's just not happening by chance either. Uh, the fourth is called the moral argument. And the moral argument says, People have a common sense of what is right and wrong. Uh, there is this uh, common sense around every culture. People understand what's right and what is wrong. Now, they may have uh, different punishments of severity, you know, for, for wrong things. But if you steal um, a, a car in America, that is wrong and you will be punished. Now, maybe it's just probation. Uh, if you steal a car in some countries in the world, they will chop off your hand. Uh, but everybody understands that it's wrong right, to take something that does not belong to you. And this sense of right and wrong comes from, from a god. Now, uh, even uh, great philosophers like Soren Kierkegaard, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, they really hammered home this problem with the, it was the Enlightenment thinking, this uh, modern worldview uh, where you take God out of the equation and you just have uh, humanity kind of moving forward toward perfection on our own, uh, using our own knowledge and science and reason. And uh, it's where Nietzsche would say, God is dead, a very famous phrase. Uh, but what he was actually saying was that uh, as far as the culture is concerned, the way that they live their lives, right, regardless of what they say they believe, uh, the way they live, they're living as if there is no God. And if there is no God to set the moral law for the people, then it becomes what he called will to power, which means that the strongest man, if there is no God, if we're just going to reject uh, this, this idea of God, then the strongest human will be the one to set the morals and decide what's right and what's wrong. And within a generation of Nietzsche, we see it uh, fulfilled in Adolf Hitler, uh, where one man decided what was morally acceptable and not. So, who sets this uh, worldview up uh, if, it's not, if it's not a god? Now, the fifth 
argument uh, or proof for the existence of God is called the ontological argument, which says, if we can conceive of God, then he must exist. Um, ontological, that's, a, that's another big word. All of these are pretty big words, I guess. Um, but it basically comes from Anselm, uh, early ancient uh, church father. Uh, and he starts with this notion that God as a being, or this notion uh, that we have of God as a being, that of which uh, no greater can be conceived. Or Rene Descartes, he starts with the notion of God as being totally perfect. Or Leibniz, he, he would say, uh, with something having uh, all perfections. So in other words, if we think about what is the most perfect thing that we can think of, what's more perfect than that? What's more perfect than that? Or most powerful? No, what would be more powerful than that? Ah, what's more powerful than that? Then eventually we are conceiving of this ultimate being, divine being. And just because we can conceive of that as a possibility that, that it's real, that, that means it is real, whatever it is, all perfection, all power, uh, all you know, eternal, all present. Um, now, this particular argument for me isn't you know, real strong one, but uh, basically every rational argument for God's existence falls into one of these five categories. And then, uh, so it's teleological. Telos means goal or end. Everything has a purpose. Cosmological which means. Everything that exists was created by something, or everything that happens was caused by something. You have to keep going back until you get to something that was not caused or not moved uh, at the beginning. That, of course, would have to be God, because everything in the physical universe is finite. Uh, it has a beginning and an end. So we need something outside of this to set it all in motion. Uh, three, the anthropo anthropological argument is that all humans uh, believe that there's something more, they have this sense of uh, spirituality, divinity, eternity, things that are way beyond what we can see, touch, feel here in the physical world. Moral argument, everybody has a sense of right and wrong, and uh, in every culture, everywhere, and then ontological, of course, just that we can conceive of this great, uh, perfect, all-powerful being means that it exists. Uh, so it's a lot of words. Uh, maybe it's kind of heady, but you know, it's really not. You probably thought about these things before, right? You, you've probably talked in this way before, or talked about the stars at night, um, most of these things. Uh, but the sixth uh, argument is called the argument of congruity. And this is the final argument that really ties them all together. And the argument of congruity says uh, things just pull together. Right? That means they're, they're congruent. They, they work together. So, in other words, whatever best explains distant related facts is probably the right answer. So we have these distant related facts, these first five arguments. We've got a world, right? Where did it come from? We've got a world that seems to function together and have reason. There's a sense of God's existence in all cultures. Uh, there's uh, people, all people have the sense of right and wrong and on and on. So if you take all of these distant related things and you say, well, what's, what's one thing that would best explain one, two, three, four, and five? What best explains all these things? 
Well, the simplest answer is God. God simply is there. Uh, he accounts for all of those uh, better than any other explanation that anybody could come up with. Uh, whatever you think of to explain one or the other, uh, the one answer for all of those questions is God. He just simply exists. Now, God reveals to us uh, his existence. Again, what we've talked about so far, uh, we would call natural revelation. You can learn these things just by observing the world, observing people, cultures, uh, astronomy, biology. Uh, you can just observe the world around us and see this evidence for God. And that's what we call natural revelation. It means that God makes himself known in the world around us. Uh, if you take a look at yourself, take a look at the world around you, you take a look at cultures, right? Every part of it, you can see God's hand, his handprint, if you will. Uh, God is there. God's behind it. And he becomes the very best explanation for why these things are and why they work the way they do. Uh, that's the general revelation that God has given us. But that's not the only way he's made himself known. People sometimes say that they would believe in God if he would just make himself known. Well, I've got good news for you. He has. Uh, we call this specific revelation. It's how God specifically revealed things about himself to us. Uh, and we call that uh, Jesus, uh, the word that may became flesh. Uh, God makes himself known in the word. Uh, he made himself known to the prophets, to the patriarchs, uh, but especially in Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, God in the flesh. Uh, has God given us evidence? Yes, a, a ton all around us in this world, but also in the scriptures and in Jesus Christ. You see, if we look at the world around us, what we can learn about God is that he's very powerful, that he is... Uh, you know, eternal, the first cause, the first mover. Um, but what we don't really know is how he feels about us. Because there's two things that all humans are born with. Again, this, this common knowledge. We've talked about one. Uh, that's the existence of God. There is something bigger than me. Uh, and the second thing we're all born with this feeling is that I've made him mad. I've messed up. I haven't lived as good as he wanted me to live. And that's why you have a lot of these you know, man-made religions that uh, are very much about trying to appease an angry God, whether it's throwing people into volcanoes or sacrifices or whatever. Uh, everybody has these kind of innate uh, concepts that we're just born with. God exists, and I made him mad. But what we learn from specific revelation, what we learn from God's word, from Jesus Christ, is that he loves us tremendously. That he is willing to come down into our creation, to enter into this world with us in order to take on our sin and to be our savior uh, so that we can live forever with him. Uh, now, uh, the big question I just want to conclude with, this is so, so important. Uh, come back and uh, pay attention to this part. Uh, why do people resist? Uh, Atheism is so, I don't know, that's popular. It's still a very small minority of people, but it, it gets a lot of press. 
right? It gets a lot of play in the public square. Uh, why do so many people doubt? Why do so many people not believe? You know, for some people today in this culture, uh, to believe in God, they would say, is stupid, foolish. You know, really smart people, they don't believe in God. Okay, that's, I mean, that's the climate that we live in. And there is a reason for that. And maybe you've heard of this name, Aldous Huxley, uh, one of the most famous atheists of the last hundred years. Uh, he was born in 1894, he died in 1963, and he wrote a very famous book called Brave New World. Uh, he is no friend to religion, faith, spirituality at all. Um, he didn't want to believe in God, and he was very honest about it. In 1937, he wrote, We don't know because we don't want to know. It is our will that decides how and upon what subjects we shall use our intelligence. Those who detect no meaning in the world generally do so because for one reason or another, it suits their books that the world should be meaningless. Here's what I want you to see, and I want you to let this sink in. He had real motives for not wanting there to be a God. He wanted to live the life he wanted to live, right? By his choices, sexual laxity, the ability to live without constraint. That's what he wanted, and he is quite honest about it. Another very famous atheist, one of the champions of atheism, is named Thomas Nagel, a professor. He wrote a book in 1997 called The Last Word. And in that book, he said, I'm talking about something much deeper, namely the fear of religion itself. I speak from experience being subject to this fear myself. I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people are religious believers. What do you think about that? Here he is confessing his motive that he wants atheism to be true. It's not as much about the science or the evidence. It's just that that's kind of how he wants the world to be. He goes on. It isn't that I just don't believe in God and naturally hope that I am right in my belief. It's that I hope that there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. He is afraid that there might be a God. And he admits a little bit later in the book, he calls it the cosmic authority problem. In other words, if there is a God, then God created everything and he probably built in rules for the way things are supposed to be and I'm his creature now and so I am accountable. I'm on the hook for living the way that he wants me to live. There are rules that need to be followed. It's not a free-for-all. So atheism is attractive because if there is a God, all of a sudden, I'm accountable to somebody. Huxley, Nagel, they are honest 
about their desires. So at the very least, I want you to at least uh, walk away from this realizing that uh, the question, does God exist? It is not about uh, science versus faith, <laughs> not at all. Uh, I believe there's more science, there's more physical evidence that God does exist than that there isn't. You, have to, you honestly have to have a lot of faith to believe that all of this happened by complete chance. It, it's astronomical, the odds of it happening. And so there's another book I recommend. It's a longer read, but uh, if nothing else, it's a good title. The title is, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And it sounds funny, uh, but it's true. When you hear atheists say, I hope, I don't want, right? These are words of religion, right? I hope that there's not a God. Oh, okay. So you, you don't have any proof, no. But I just want the world to be that way. Uh, the height of intelligence in our world, again, uh, would say that you must ignore the evidence for God. But God says in Psalm 14, verse 1, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Is God real? Is he really out there? Yes, absolutely. He is more real than anything that you have ever experienced. God is the ultimate reality. God simply is. Thanks for joining us. And check out the next episode about religions. Are all religions the same?